Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, who will ascend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of the Lord. It's a great joy for my wife Meg and me to be back with you all. Uh, thank you for your ever warm welcome and um, for making us feel so, so very much at home at CCV. And again, I want publicly to, uh, to give thanks for the ministry and leadership of your, your pastor and rector, Johnny. Uh, Johnny, I do praise God for your, for your humble leadership, for your, your great pastor's heart, your love for the people of God, and your, your great love for this community. Uh, you have such a heart to take people out uh, in mission, uh, to share the love of Jesus with this, with this community. And you and Sarah are a great team, and you're doing a wonderful job, and I praise God for you. Thank you so much. Amen. <laughs> They're telling you not to let it go to your head. Yeah, I can see. <laughs> Thanks also to, uh, to Corky and Rod and the staff team, uh, and to Will and Peter and the church council. Uh, just thank God for, for you all. You all are so uh, faithfully and graciously led, and I know you know that, but I hope you, I hope you thank God for that. It's a, it's a great blessing. I bring you greetings from our Archbishop, uh, Archbishop Foley Beach of the Anglican Church in North America uh, and all his travels uh, around the country and across the globe he sends his, his special greetings uh, to you all. Well you've been in a, in a series of great sermons on seven big questions as you explore God. I've been listening online along with you and I've really enjoyed the way you've dug into these important issues. This morning we come to the culmination of the series and it really brings us to the heart of the matter. Can I know God personally? The Barnett Research Organization reports that when asked what condition they desire most for their future, 75% of adults said, a close relationship with God. Can I know God personally? Well, the short answer to the question is yes. Yes, you can know God personally. You can know him and be known by him. You can experience his love and his goodness. You can hear his voice and know his will. 
You can be in relationship with God now and forever. But the longer answer comes to the follow-up questions. How do I know God personally? How can I have a right relationship with God? How do I know him now? And how do I know I'll be with him forever? How do I find salvation? How do I get to heaven? Well, if we want to know God personally, we have to deal with our sin problem. Sin separates us from God. God is pure and holy and perfectly loving, and our sin creates a chasm between us and God. We need to deal with sin. But in our culture, about the only place outside church where we talk about sin is on the dessert menu. We may not be so sure about truth and morality and right and wrong, but eating that sinfully delicious, double-rich, death-by-chocolate fudge cake, now that's a sin. <laughs> Actually, that's not what the Bible calls sin. No surprise there. The Bible says sin isn't just doing something wrong. Sin is not living in a right relationship with God. Sin is trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in God. Sin is placing ultimate value on something other than God, even something that's good like family or career or health or something like popularity or wealth. Sin is falling short of God's best. And ultimately, sin is not accepting the truth of what Jesus did for us by dying on the cross. We've been living this way all our lives, caught up in sin. But oh, how we try to ignore it. How we try to hide the truth about ourselves and our situation. A church I know has a school for very young children as part of its ministry. One day the pastor dropped by the school library to visit with the children. And he sat down next to a little girl who was looking at a book for pre-readers. One of those books with a picture and a single word on each page. And she started to show it to the pastor and she said, that's a truck, she said very proudly to him. That's a drum, you know, that's a top, that's a ball. When she came to a picture of a hatchet, she said, that's a hammer. Then she turned the page, and there was a picture of a hammer. She looked at the hammer, turned back, looked at the hatchet, looked at the hammer, looked at the hatchet, closed the book, and smiling sweetly, she said to the pastor, this is the library, we really shouldn't be talking in here. <laughs> How early in our lives do we learn to cover up, <laughs> to hide our real condition? how naturally we shift the blame, deny the truth, avoid the responsibility. And so often we, we refuse to acknowledge our sin, our guilt, our desperate need for God's forgiveness. How do I deal with my sin? How can I know God? How do I find salvation? People answer that question many ways. Or we could say people try a lot of different ways to get to heaven. The first way to know God, the first way to get to heaven, is by being perfect. 
You see, God's standard is perfection. Be perfect, Jesus said. He said it in the Sermon on the Mount. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't know about you, but for me, it's already too late to get into heaven by being perfect. Actually, I do know about you, <laughs> and it's too late for you, too. <laughs> and so some have come up with the notion of salvation by reincarnation. Yes, it may be too late to be perfect in this life, but maybe I get another lifetime to try again. Two problems with that. One, if it were true, it would offer only the deepest despair. It would doom you to ultimate and everlasting failure and futility because nothing would change the next time. You'd simply fail to be perfect over and over and over again. And two, it's not true. The Bible says bluntly in Hebrews chapter 9, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. When we die, we come before God and he holds us accountable for every single thing we've ever done or said or even thought. A new variation on the idea of salvation by reincarnation is one we're hearing more and more about these days. We might call it salvation by technology. The Inventor of the Frisbee, Ed Hedrick, died a few years back at the age of 78. While people had been throwing flat things for many years, it was Hedrick who came up with the design of what we call the Frisbee that could fly so far and smoothly. Uh, Hedrick said that he believed that the Frisbee is really a religion. Frisbeterians, we call ourselves, he said. And so at his, desk, he at his death, he had his ashes molded into a limited number of Frisbees. Memorial flying discs, he called them. He said, when Frisbeterians die, we don't go to purgatory, we just land on the roof and lie there. <laughs> but there are some people who are really quite serious about salvation by technology, which is putting your hope for eternity in some wished-for scientific advance. Some of you will recall the flap a few years ago over the body of baseball great Ted Williams, who had signed a statement that he wanted to be frozen after death so that he and two of his children would be able to be together in the future, even if it's only a chance. A number of celebrities, whom I won't distract you by naming, have expressed interest in being frozen after they die. But not only is it questionable to trust yourself to the cryonics company, that's the place that's keeping you frozen, that it won't go out of business and let you thaw, um, the, the reality is that this is just like cloning, offering you only, at best, a longer go at earthly life, even though it's a bionic version. It still begs the question, what happens after death? What will happen to me when I die? And what do I do to know God and to receive eternal life? And so some people say, okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. I'll try to find God by being good. They think you can please God and get into heaven by being good enough. You try to live an upstanding life. Don't commit any really bad sins. Occasionally do something nice and hope God's in a good mood when you arrive at the gates of heaven. The problem with that notion is that the Bible says it doesn't work. 
being good isn't good enough. Sin violates God's holiness. You've got to be perfect. Another form of relying on goodness we could call salvation by comparison. Some people compare themselves to others and smugly think they're in pretty good shape. I'm better than Hitler. I'm better than my brother-in-law. I'm better than so-and-so. So what? I could outrun my 96-year-old mother-in-law, but that doesn't make me a track star. <laughs> but most of us like to think we're doing okay. Social scientists have served the attitudes of Americans toward our own moral goodness. They've discovered that most of us are firmly convinced that while we're not perfect, we're not doing too badly because there are a lot of others out there that are worse sinners than we are. The irony is that the average person believes he is morally superior to the average person. But it's this pride that blinds us to our true spiritual condition, to the real need of our hearts. I've noticed that when I'm short-tempered and insensitive and say hurtful things to those I love, I am quick to say, oh, you see, I'm just really tired. I've been under a lot of pressure. You know the lines. In other words, the John that was so obnoxious isn't the real me. But let me be loving and gracious and self-sacrifice, and what do I think? Oh, no, that's not like me. I just got a good night's sleep. No, of course not. I like to think that the loving guy is the real me. In school, did you ever have a test the whole class bombed, and you told yourself, she can't flunk us all. She's got to grade this test on the curve. Well, some people think nobody's perfect. God can't send us all to hell. Surely God must grade on the curve. Two problems with that. One, God is not in heaven slapping his forehead over our behavior saying, oh, that do not commit adultery commandment. That was too tough. I won't count that one. No, God's standard is still perfection. And two, with seven billion people on the planet, it's tough to know your class rank. But God makes it clear that he doesn't want us to be uncertain about our relationship with him. He wants us to know him, know him now, and he wants us to know for certain that we will belong to him and be with him for eternity. So some people think there must be extra credit questions. Some people try to work around the standard of perfection by thinking they can just be extra good and work off some of their sins, like extra credit questions on the test. When our sons were young, they would tell me about a test at school, and I'd ask, what did you get? They'd say, well, I missed two questions, and I got 103. And I'm thinking, how could you miss two questions and get 103? And the answer was, of course, I got the extra credit questions right. Well, some people think God puts extra credit questions on the test. Some people think, well, I may have fudged on my income taxes, but I stopped and helped that woman with a flat tire. They think they've worked off a sin or two by being kind or generous. But Jesus made it clear it doesn't work that way. And he even told a story explicitly to teach us that we can't make up for our sins by being extra good. Jesus said, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep 
Say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Did you catch that? When you've done all that is expected of you, you've only done your duty. We think when we've been especially kind or loving or forgiving, we've done some great thing. We must have earned some extra credit points. But Jesus says, no, love God with your whole heart and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what's expected of you all the time. That loving thing that you just did, by that you've just finally begun to attain what you're supposed to be doing every minute of every day. There's no extra credit for it. And if you look back just a few verses before that story in Luke's gospel, you'll see what prompted Jesus to give that particular teaching. He was speaking about forgiveness, and he said, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. We have a hard time forgiving someone ever if they've hurt us deeply. But Jesus says we have to do it seven times in a day. In other words, we've got to offer limitless forgiveness. We have to forgive every time. And the disciples responded, whoa, increase our faith. They knew it was beyond them. And doing absolutely everything Jesus commanded at every moment is way beyond us, too. And so at that point, you begin to realize you could never work off all your sins. And so perhaps you turn to yet another plan. You go to church. You get baptized. Or maybe you were baptized as a child. But as a guy I know likes to say, you can get baptized in the ocean till every fish knows you by your first name. But if it's just an outward action, it doesn't do you any good. Now, I believe in baptism. Jesus commanded us to do it. And when you commit your life to Jesus, you should be baptized. But if we think that we can perform some outward ritual which isn't matched with an inward change of heart, we're kidding ourselves. And God certainly isn't fooled. Just getting wet isn't enough. If that were true, I think I'd go through Tyson's Corner Mall with a fire hose and send everybody to heaven. And then there's your family. Some of you might say, my family's a Christian. That's great. But you need to make a personal decision yourself. The Apostle Paul told the young Timothy that while his grandmother was a Christian and his mother was a Christian, what counted was, was his own sincere faith, his own relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, it used to be that young children traveling outside the U.S. didn't have to have their own passport. They could travel on their parents' passport. When they got older, they had to have their own. But salvation by family doesn't work. You can't get into heaven on your mother's passport or your wife's. You have to have your own relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's it. That's the last way to heaven. 
In fact, it's the only way to heaven. It's by surrender. You don't get to God by being good or by being better than someone else or even by being a church member. The only way to know God is by being forgiven. And that forgiveness is ours only when we ask for it, when we accept it and receive it. When we admit we've blown it and can't fix ourselves, when we turn away from our sins and ask Jesus to wipe the slate clean, when we surrender control of our life to Jesus Christ and allow him to take charge. Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment we deserve. He died as our substitute, paying the penalty for our sin so that we can be forgiven. There's nothing we can do to earn his forgiveness, nothing we can do to pay it back. All we can do is say yes to him, to receive his forgiveness, to, love his, to open our hearts to his love and his mercy, and then gratefully live our lives in obedience to him. That's what salvation by surrender is all about. A relationship with God, knowing him personally. A relationship that begins by saying yes to Jesus, admitting our need for forgiveness, surrendering ourselves to him, and making him Lord of every part of our lives. We all need forgiveness, and only in Jesus can forgiveness be found. Marganita Lasky was a prominent British humanist. She was debating against a Christian on television in England, and in the debate she made an amazing confession. She said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. And then she added sadly, I have no one to forgive me. The Bible says that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Our reading this morning from Paul's letter to the Romans puts it this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You don't come to know God by trying to be perfect or trying to be good or trying to be good enough. You couldn't do it on your own in a thousand lifetimes. You don't get to know God by being better than someone else or because of your family or by joining a church. You only get to know God by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ and accepting the forgiveness that he freely offers to every person. That's the good news that we especially celebrate today as these young people declare their faith in Christ in confirmation. The way to know God is to know Jesus. And Jesus is for everybody. Not just for Christians, not just for religious people. He came to offer salvation to the whole world, to Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists and skeptics and people who don't know what to believe. Jesus is for everybody. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've never put your trust not in your own goodness, but in his forgiveness, you might say something like this in your heart, either this morning or tonight in your bedroom or next week or whenever you decide. You could say, 
Jesus, I give up trying to do it myself, trying to make it on my own, trying to make up for my past, trying to solve my own problems, trying to be good enough to earn my way to you. I want to know you personally. If I don't really belong to you, I ask you to take me as your own today. I ask you to forgive me and give me the gift of eternal life. I put my whole trust in you, and I choose to follow you. Jesus, thank you for loving me and dying for me and forgiving me. Help me to live my life your way. As the Bible promises us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you pray a prayer like that, whenever you decide to do it, let me encourage you to come and tell Johnny or Corky or one of the other leaders here so that they can encourage you and support you and help you to enjoy a deep, personal relationship with Jesus now and for all eternity. Let's pray. Gracious God, it is you who gives us the yearning to know you and to know you more. Draw us to yourself that through your son Jesus, we would experience the joy of a deep relationship with you now and forever. Amen.